Hey there, it's Kale. I just wanted to give a few words before we get underway here. First off, if you decide to listen in, thank you. As you can hear, I'm back in the driver's seat, and on my way in this moment to meet with a reporter for an interview. We've been on a bit of a hiatus with Byline for the past year to year and a half. Different colleagues have left the newspaper during that period, which sometimes requires helping to fill in on other roles as a result. Plus, I've had some other multimedia projects or tasks that I focus some time and energy on, too. But, we had an episode a few weeks ago, and we're looking to get this wagon rolling again. There's a few topics lined up, and we'll see where this goes. Thank you, dear listener, for your patience and time. So, let's enjoy the ride, and kick this off. From the Times of Northwest Indiana, and nwi.com slash podcasts, You're listening to Byline, the podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Kale Wilk, and this time Byline takes a look at a past criminal case that left the family and the surrounding community devastated. We'll talk with law enforcement officials that played a role in the investigation. You know, he knew he was going to prison for the rest of his life. At least that's what we hoped for, but it didn't work out that way. And we'll talk with a reporter looking to achieve the best balance in a tough situation. For him, he feels like he's turned his life around and he's trying to make sure that other people have good chances to make sure that they don't make the wrong decisions that he did. In this moment, I'm riding with Allie Kirkman, our South Lake County reporter, out to a spot in rural Lake County, out in Center Township between St. John and Crown Point. We're following along with Brad Lambert, a St. John resident. Almost 40 years ago, in 1982, Brad was getting ready to go to school, and he discovered something in the cornfield near his home that has stuck with him his whole life. Somewhere like about right where see where those clumps are in there yeah he, 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 he drug her in there about that distance I'd say what he found was a decomposing body <laughs> that of Robin Safaz well if you could imagine when you got corn stalks yeah. you know this high so I had I had to I had to wade in there you know but but the straw but the smell was so strong I, I, you know, I knew I I was close We're going to return to that subject, but first it's worth mentioning what this is even all about, or why we've been following this story. The Times of Northwest Indiana is introducing a new series titled Crimes That Rocked the Region. It examines crime stories that have roiled local communities and left lasting impacts on families and leaders that are still around today. Allie was the reporter tasked with creating the first installment of this series. Now? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, my name is Allie Kirkman, and I'm the South Lake County reporter for The Times. Allie comes to us from Lebanon, Indiana. Or I guess I should say Lebanon, as the folks there like to pronounce it. She majored in journalism and telecommunications at Ball State University and earned past work and internship experience at the Commercial Review in Portland, Indiana, and the South Bend Tribune. 
Now she's dashing around for us around South Lake County, covering anything and everything from municipal meetings and economic development to more in-depth feature stories and profiles. Um, so I'm just in charge of covering South Lake County, focusing on areas like Crown Point, St. John, Winfield, Cherville, Dyer, those areas. Um, and with it getting warmer, the majority of what I've been covering is construction and some like upcoming economic development um, and commercial development. So it's a little bit of everything, but I cover a lot of meetings. I have a lot of late nights covering meetings, so I've been able to meet a lot of people um, through that. So the residents are very invested in their communities, which is super good. But I've, but I mean, I've covered municipal meetings and, and, and government meetings before, and I've never seen quite as much residential involvement as I have here. You could say Allie has run into a slight situation as a result of her beat and working on this story. What should be mentioned as we get into this is that the murder case surrounds Paul Dressel, the man eventually convicted. Paul is married to Christy Dressel, the clerk treasurer for the city of Crown Point. And she's running for mayor against incumbent David Uran. So addressing Christy, yeah, it was kind of awkward to say, you know. Um, you always want to be respectful and you don't want to seem like you're trying to do a hit piece on anybody or... So it's been a delicate balancing act for Allie. And she'll get more into that as we progress along here. And with that, we'll dive in. Allie has covered all the bases here by reaching out to all parties involved to see who would be willing to speak with us. It's included police detectives, the Safaz family, and the Dressels. The story starts back on a Friday night in August 1982. To help tell parts of this, Allie spent time interviewing detectives and witnesses, some of which I was able to join her for. One of those investigators was John Mowry Sr., who was a general assignment detective with the Griffith Police Department. The story centers around Robin Zafaz, who was 20 at the time, and had left with friends to go to a party in Crown Point. At the party, she met Paul who we didn't know his last name at the time, but anyway. And throughout the evening, uh, they were talking, I guess, and, and so on and so forth, and she told her, uh, the girls, her girlfriends, that she was going to, he was going to take her home. And they said, are you sure, you know, are you, you know, yeah, yeah, it's going to, yeah, I'm going to, he's going to give me, he's going to drop me off. They left and headed to a secluded area, per the detective. And of course, all we, all I, all I have from that is what he says happened. And uh, um, but I think the general consensus is is that he he um, made advances toward her. Okay. And she didn't want anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. And I believe at that point, uh, according to him. He grabbed her, and obviously strangled her. Nearby the area, a man, whose name was Curtis Darnell, spotted him leaving the cornfield early that morning. Unbeknownst to him, someone who was leaving for work and going to work early saw him and the car. Of course, they didn't know it was him at the time. Yeah. And they thought he was just dumping, because I guess that's a problem out there. He managed to write down the first license plate numbers on the vehicle. 
45A73. Although Darnell didn't immediately bring that info forward to police, his part in the story comes later. The following day, on a Saturday evening, Robin Safaz's parents, Chester and Shirley, came into the Griffith police station. They were distraught, as a detective described, and filed a missing persons report for their daughter. So I took the report, mm-hmm. and I told them we'll start immediately and, and see what we can find out. So then uh, um, I got a hold of a friend of mine who was a detective on the Lake County Police Department, Tom DeCanter, and uh, uh, I said, you know, I told him what I had, and okay, so uh, we decided that we would uh, attempt to find out from where this party was at, who this Paul was. A team began searching for Robin Zafaz. Two days passed, and the story began to unravel from witnesses that she had left with a man named Paul. Investigators were able to determine his last name was Dressel and stopped by his parents' house, nearby where the party had happened. John Mowry was greeted at the door by Paul's father. I identified myself, and I said, uh, I'd like to talk to Paul if he's here. And uh, while he's not home, he went back to Conroe, Texas. He was just here visiting uh, for a short period of time, and he actually lives in Conroe, Texas. Conroe is just outside of Houston, so John got a telephone number by which he can call Paul. I think I called that very evening, and um, I talked to Paul. I, he answered the phone. I identified myself, and I said, uh, Paul, I wanted to ask you about um, a girl that you met at the party that you went to. And so we had a brief telephone conversation, and he said, I said, uh, it's my understanding that you took her home. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, yeah, I, I, I dropped her off. And I said, oh, okay. I said, uh, where did you drop her off at? And he goes, uh, over, over, I think she lived in Griffith. Over in Griffith, by, I, I, you know, by her house, or at least she told me that, you know. Well, I knew that was excuse the expression BS right off the get-go because okay. I you just know mm-hmm. you understand what I mean yeah but it was at a disadvantage because I'm not sitting there looking at the guy Paul said he tries to come home periodically and John asked if the two can get together so he can ask more questions Paul said yes the two were scheduled to meet on a Saturday a couple weeks later in the meantime we return to Brad Lambert who's a teenager at the time He used to live in a home off of 125th Avenue, the spot he took us to at the beginning of this episode. Now, there's a Lynn's Heritage Angus outfit there. Right there at that 90-degree bend, that's where where I would catch catch the bus. Mm -hmm. Because I was going going to uh, Taft Junior High at the time. I was a 7th grader. Brad was getting ready for school. He would ride his bike to the end of the driveway and chain it to a tree. You know, about... I'm going to say it's probably, it was probably about 50 yards before I got to the end of the driveway. You know, I mean, this smell just hit me, almost knocked, almost knocked me off my bike. It was, you know, like nothing I had ever, you know, I'd ever recognized, you know, or smelled before and nothing since. But if I ever smelled it again, I'd know it instantly. <laughs> 
Brad wasn't sure what it was. He says it wasn't uncommon for people to dump garbage in the area or abandon animals and leave them to die and decompose out in the rural sections there. So I, I just I, so I started to go into the cornfield because it was obviously it was coming from that direction, so it was in the cornfield somewhere. And you know I kept walking, and then you know the smell hit me again. So I kind of pinpointed as I started going th- going through the rows, and then I mean out of a I just. I kind of saw this flash of white, and then, you know, I just got down and looked and focused a little bit more, and there her hand was. Tearing out of the cornfield, got onto my bike, you know, rode back to my, you know, to my house as fast as I could, burst into the door, you know, screaming to my mom, you know, there's a dead body, there's a dead body, I found a dead body, I found a body, and she's like, what are you talking about, this and that, and I'm like, you know, I know what I saw. I saw her. I saw her hand. I saw her hand. I said, I said her. I didn't hear because it was long fingernails, you know, stuff like that. Brad's mother said she was taking him in the car and driving back to the spot so he could point out the body. Brad was frightened and didn't want to go back, but was dragged along nonetheless. And then, you know, she couldn't. She couldn't find it. And then she finally came in the car and got me. She was Brad. She was. I don't smell anything. I don't see anything. You know, you have to show me what you're talking about here. And so. I went and I took her and as soon as I saw her, you know, I, I'm like, there it is. And I bolted out of the cornfield again. And then she finally saw it. And then, uh, you know, she kind of, she kind of panicked too, because instead of driving back to our house, you know, she drove like up the street to the neighbors and pounded on their door and said, you know, can we use your phone? This was before cell phones, obviously. She was, can we use your phone? You know, we need to call 911. There's a dead body in our cornfield. And this. The authorities were alerted about the dead body. Brad, who ended up going to school later that day, was eventually called down to the principal's office because a police officer had shown up to question him. Eventually, the body was identified as Robin Zafaz by her dental records. The Cook County medical examiner at the time then took a look at her body and determined strangulation as the cause of death. The discovery of the body had traumatized Brad for a while. He recalls wanting to sleep with his parents in their bedroom for a few weeks and refused to go near the spot he had found Robin's body. He later received a card from Chester and Shirley Zafaz. You know, it was just, it was just a heartfelt card. It is, you know, we thank, you know, we thank God that, you know, that you were there that morning and that, you know, that, 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 that you found her and that you, 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 you know, you brought her home to us and, and um, you know, I did understand that. That made sense. That made that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine we have three children of our own. Um, twenty-three, twenty-two, and uh, seventeen. Couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. Couldn't imagine how you know it did that. Would just rips a hole through your soul and right the ultimate ultimate injustice. Now, we have to circle back to John Mowry. Here he is again, but now he gets a curveball. I was at the Elder Brady Funeral Home in Cedar Lake with Robin, waiting on a forensic odontologist. I get a phone call from Fred Work. Now, you don't know who Fred Work is, but he's a longtime attorney here, Frederick T. Work. Okay. Gary. Okay. 
And I'd had cases against Fred before, you know. He says, uh, Detective Mowry, yeah. He said, I'm calling to tell you that uh, my client won't be able to meet with you. And, you know, at that point in time, I think, I think that he knew that Robin had been found. But remember Curtis Darnell from before? He had seen news coverage of the case, and so he made a call. About that time, after her body was found, and there was certain newspaper stuff generated, mm -hmm. a call comes into the Lake County Police Department. And it's this concerned citizen who happened to be driving to work who saw this young man in this car with this plate number dumping some stuff, mm -hmm. and it was over there near where Robin's body was found. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, they run the plate, and guess who it comes back to? It's his parents. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So now we can put, now we know what the cause of death was. We know he left the party with her. We know that he says he dropped her off at home, but she never got home. And... Now we know that he had her clothes in his hand. Mm -hmm. So now the case starts to come together. Mm -hmm. To help explain what happened next, we have Tom DeCanter here, who is partnering with Jim Mowry. I can still remember that damn plate number. I don't know. I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> and I can remember that. That's, that's odd. But we were able to, we impounded his car got a search warrant, and we found some of Robin's jewelry in the car. Did John tell you that? The earring? Yeah, the earring. And uh, my partner, who was Jim Dowling and Jimmy Apollo, went to Conroe, Texas to bring him back. And we had been told by the prosecutor's office that we couldn't talk to him because he had an attorney already. However, he talked to Conroe police before they got there and gave a confession. If it hadn't been, would we have caught him? Yeah, because he was at the party. Would have got him. But Mr. Darnell writing that plate number down was huge. That's how we did it. After the videotape confession in Texas, Paul Dressel was transported to Lake County. He pled guilty to murder in October 1983, waiving his right to a trial by jury. Originally, he had pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but changed his plea on the eve of the trial when the videotape confession was ruled admissible for the trial. Paul was sentenced to 35 years in prison in November. In the court session, Shirley Zafaz said the following to Paul. We have accepted the sentence. We understand it. We have discussed it a lot and considered all the risks of a trial. So we did accept the 35-year sentence, but this is not, we believe, what Paul Dressel deserves. I believe he would deserve a life sentence, death to begin with. He took my daughter's life, and I think his life should be taken too. I do hope that he suffers each day of this prison term for taking the life of my daughter, Robin. We are all going to remember her, how much we loved her, and also how we worried about her and looked for her for two weeks after Paul Dressel cruelly strangled her and left her in a cornfield. Chester Zafaz died in 2010. 
surely declined to speak for the purposes of this podcast, so court records and past news articles are all we have to go off of. Nothing really stood out about, you know, again, he was a young kid, you know what I mean? But he didn't say a lot. You know, I mean, he was, you know, he knew he was going to prison for the rest of his life. At least that's what we hoped for, but it didn't work out that way. It was a young girl. I mean, she had her whole life in front of her, and she was killed for no reason. There, I mean, I don't know why he killed her. He never told us that. John Mowry had similar thoughts on the matter. And then you watch all the real suffering that the victim's family goes through. And, and those people went through hell. That's that's another of the real tragedies of this, you know, watching watching good parents like that. You know, a person, a young person ought to be able to go to a social gathering and not worry about never coming home again. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in our society, those kind of things happen. So, to kind of come full circle here, why are we bringing this up? Why brush the dust off a murder case from several decades ago? Well, Paul Dressel is out of prison. He served 18 years from his 35-year sentence, officially released in April 2001. He says he helps out at a local church to mentor kids struggling with alcohol and substance abuse, which he says contributed to decisions in his past, including Robin Safaz's murder. From Christie's perspective and from Paul's, they both acknowledge that this is a very tragic case. And Paul, in multiple occasions, multiple times, he says he regrets everything that, that happened then. And he feels very deeply for the family. But the way they're trying to look at it now is trying to find some sort of light in such a dark time for Paul. When he was younger, he was struggling with drug and alcohol abuse. So now since he's gotten out of prison, you know, he's been an advocate and really preaching to kids who have been going through the same type of things that he was to try to avoid, I guess, repeating the things that Paul did. In my opinion, I think that's a little extreme. Um, but, I mean, they're, they're looking at it from there's a way to shine light on such a negative situation. He's being that voice and saying, hey, I made this mistake, I made this mistake. For him, he feels like he's turned his life around and he's trying to make sure that other people have good chances to make sure that they don't make the wrong decisions that he did. And that's something that Christy has said that she greatly admires about her husband. As journalists, we try to give the different sides a chance to speak. Christy and Paul Dressel declined to do an audio interview for the purposes of Allie's story and this podcast. However, they did give a prepared statement to Allie. From Christy Dressel, it reads, Incarceration is for retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation. Paul has paid his retribution to society. Should he be judged forever for what he did at age 20? Should he not have a place in society now? I believe in the judicial system, and I also believe when you have completed your time, our nation gives people a second chance. To follow that, Paul says as follows. 
With hard work and perseverance and hope and faith and a relationship with God, you can change. We all can change. I am a proven example. There are second chances. I want the reader to come up with their own opinion. Um, obviously, like I mentioned, um, Christy Dressel is an elected official, and now she's running for the mayor of Crown Point. So a lot of people are talking about her judgment and if she's going to be able to lead people. And um, her husband's murder conviction kind of ties into that judgment. Um, I'm just going to leave it to the readers to make their connections. I think you have to, I mean, Paul Dressel is in the case. I can't, you can't avoid who his wife is, especially since she's an elected official. She's a public figure that has to tie in. Um, but it's going to be up to the reader to, to decide what they want to think. I feel Allie has summed it all up perfectly. With municipal elections around the corner and voters prepared to exercise their civic duty, you may keep the ideas and results mentioned in this podcast in the back of your mind when making your own decisions. You, dear listener, now get to take this information and do with it as you will. Consequences must result from decision-making that destroys lives. But can there be redemption with the time you have left in a life? A murder case is painful to dig up, but sometimes even past choices can have present-day ramifications. Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. You can find all of our episodes at nwi.com slash digital slash audio. Reporting for this episode came from Allie Kirkman. We'd like to thank Tom DeCanter, Brad Lambert, Rick Lemire, John Mowry, and Christy and Paul Dressel for providing various comments for the story. If you have suggestions for an episode topic or want to share your thoughts, you can drop an email to kale.wilk at nwi.com. I'm Kale Wilk, and from the Times of Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening. See you next time.